1 Samuel chapter 17, we pick up in the continuing story of uh, David and his life. We began the book, of course, looking at Samuel, uh, this prophet that God has raised up to bring Israel back into a relationship with him, and uh, it didn't go so hot. Samuel was faithful, but the people remained unfaithful to the Lord. And in the process of this, they asked, of course, for a king. That king uh, comes to be this guy named Saul. Now, the thing about Saul that we're told is that Saul uh, is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's, it's one of the, the, the weakest, smallest tribes, and one that was you know, in a civil war with the rest of Israel for a good portion of time. Um, but Saul is kind of the prototypical king. He's a prototypical king. He's the tallest in the land. He's the most handsome, it, uh, the scriptures tell us. And so he is exactly out of central casting. He's the guy that you would think, yeah, this is for sure the king. But yet Saul, uh, his, his actions and his attitude and his life is characterized by fear. All the things that he, that he does are characterized by responding to fear. It, whether it's fear of others, fear of how people are perceiving him, fear of, of losing power or losing control, it's Saul's life that is, is constantly defined by this. And, and as he, you look at the story of Saul, as you follow the narrative, we see that Saul comes to a place where ultimately he has, uh, he has distanced himself from the Lord so often, so frequently, that the Lord finally just says, you know what, Saul, uh, you are not after the, the type of king that I wanted you to be. You're not after my heart. You're not leading the people. Because if you recall, the point of the king was not just to rule and reign in whatever the king wanted to do, but rather the king is a figurehead. The king represents God to the people, God's rule and reign. And so the king is really this uh, institutional uh, head that uh, enacts the policies, the rule that God wants to bring about to his people. And Saul decided he wanted to go his own way. He wanted to go do his own thing. And so uh, the Lord eventually rejects Saul from being the king. And he says, you know, we're going we're gonna to move on. We're going to pass this over. And we're going to, to come to a new king. And he gives Samuel this new direction. He says, you know, I want you to go and find this new king. And he sends him to a small tribe. Uh, he sends him to this, this city. And he says, hey, there's a... There's a a family here. I want you to, to go meet this family, and, and I will tell you when the king is here. And so what happens is that Samuel does this. He goes there, and he sits down to offer this uh, sacrificial meal and enjoy this time with this group of people in the city. And, and as he finds this guy, Jesse, who's the head of this household, he, he says, hey, you know, where, where are all your sons? He's ready to anoint the next king. And, and it's Jesse who, who parades all of his sons in front of Samuel. And the Lord, one after the other, keeps saying, nope, that's not the guy, that's not the guy. But the interesting thing about it is uh, we find that as this, as this process began, Samuel, he very much was in the same thinking, uh, it seems, as perhaps the people at a previous point. Because if you read in chapter uh, 16, 16, verse 6, we read that when the oldest... Eliab, when he comes forth, uh, he looked on him and Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He thinks, okay, here's the firstborn. He's the tallest. He's the most qualified, the most equipped. This is the guy. But yet in that moment, the Lord speaks to him. 
In, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord speaks to him. In verse 7, we read this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's the Lord's pursuit of the heart. He wants to, to see within, to see those who are passionately pursuing him, who want to know him, want to enjoy him, want to be in relationship with him. And so he's not looking for a qualified exterior. He's looking for a humble interior. He's looking for a heart that is willing to pursue the Lord, willing to be molded and shaped. And yet, as we come, as he comes to David, he finds this in the youngest of Jesse's sons. He goes through all the sons and nobody's there that is worthy. And Samuel says, you know, there's got to be another. And so he has Jesse send out for this son, David, who's a shepherd out in the field. David doesn't even get named until quite a bit later. And then he comes in and he's like, okay, yeah, this is the Lord's anointed. Here we go. Let's anoint this little kid. History tells us he's probably between 10 and 15 years old. And so here we go. We've got this, uh, this young man who is pursuing the Lord passionately, who desires to know God. And upon being anointed, he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's equipped for that which God has called him to. The Lord provides everything that he needs in order to do what he's called him to. And the next thing that we see is that David goes out and he, uh, you know, of course, is uh, playing in the, in the palace his harp and he's kind of coming in and out as needed. But then as we come to chapter 17, we get a different glimpse. We get a different glimpse. And we get really here the first uh, true picture of David. We read in verse 1 of chapter 17 these words. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Ezekah in the Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So here's the picture. Now it's come to the point, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but some time has passed here. And, and, and we find that there is a fresh invasion of the troops from uh, the Philistines. There's a fresh invasion. There's a new opportunity for battle here. And we find that uh, there is a valley that exists here in the, the western foothills of Israel. And, and this, kind of run, this valley runs between the Philistine territory and the territory uh, that belonged to Judah. Now, the Philistines were on the north side of this valley and uh, the Israelites were on the south side of this valley. And so they have this big gap between them. They're, they're, they're meeting for the purpose of war. They're kind of in a standoff on their borders. That's really what's happening here. They've come to a spot, and, and neither side is, is willing to kind of bring their whole army into battle as they're kind of just on this border. The valley is there for them to begin this battle, but yet nothing has, has happened. They're waiting there. And Saul has gathered his, his troops. He's ready to go. But we find that the reason that there hasn't been a battle is because they are practicing a uh, 
particular form of warfare in order to avoid bloodshed, a particular form of warfare in order to uh, preserve resources. And, And likely this was also to kind of there wasn't really a need for this battle at this point. Everyone was kind of just guarding their, their, their borders to a certain extent. And so we find here that one of the reasons that we haven't seen a, a, a complete battle yet is that they are relying on this uh, practice of uh, the battle of champions. We read in verse 4 of the champion that belonged to the Philistines. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. So we have this description that the author gives to us that is meant to lay out this commanding presence of this warrior, of this champion. It's meant to to have us consider uh, this individual and and to really step back and say, this guy is a specimen. Like he mean he is he is the cream of the crop. Right? We find here that, that Goliath is measured in cubits, which, you know, if, um, if you've had your measuring tape lately, you could roll it out and find exactly how long Goliath is, like how tall he is. Uh, the problem is there's not really like a solid agreement on how, like, cubits, uh, what, what that was. Some people say it's about 18 inches. Eh, give or take. We, we don't really know exactly. But most scholars, most academics uh, estimate that Goliath was somewhere between 8 feet five inches and nine feet six inches which is like absolutely massive eight feet five inches and uh nine feet six inches i I believe that if you uh don't do this now because you're gonna get distracted i went down this rabbit hole already the tallest the tallest man like on record is like this guy like robert wadlow something and he was like i'm pretty sure he was like 811 or something crazy like that like he's the tallest recorded uh, person, but this is well within you know range, and he had some like pituitary gland thing that made him keep growing when he was when he was like five. He was like five. I think when he was five years old, he was he was a uh, five ten, <laughs> some crazy thing like that. Anyways, I think you kind of get an idea here that this individual is meant to just be absolutely massive. I mean, we have some players in the NBA today, of course, that are uh, eight feet plus. Just, uh, just over a, a touch. But you get the idea here that this uh, this individual who is about to go toe to toe with with a kid. I mean, you could, you could say like someone was six two and versus a kid, and I think we'd say like that was pretty like intense battle right there. But here we find that this person absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. The armor, we're told, weighs about 125 pounds that this person would have worn. And that his, uh, the tip of his spear was probably over 15 pounds. Like just, you know, usually those are designed to be somewhat light. So that way you can throw it far and, and you know, do damage. It can be more aerodynamic. But apparently Goliath was so strong 
uh, that this was, you know, the best thing for him. But what we find here, this description is really brought about so that we might see that, that Goliath is a man who is, who is defined by iron and by bronze. He's defined as a man of metal. He is made of metal. You know, he's got all this around. He's just, his, his muscles are, are just like solid. He is equipped. And here, his description really strikes fear in the heart of the Philistines, or excuse me, the Israelites. More than that, he came, he came with threats. He came with curses. We read in verse 8, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are, are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So Goliath comes out and he's like, what's the problem? Like, I'm a Philistine. Where's your champion? Who are you guys going to send out? I'm representing the Philistines. We're going to do this. If I win, then you guys serve us. If you win, then we will serve you. Straightforward. But he, he comes at it with this threat, I defy, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, as we said that this is a battle of champions here, the theory behind this was one to avoid bloodshed, but part of this also was to uh, identify whose God is stronger. Because the thought is that the, the God that is the stronger God is going to allow the individual to prevail. Now, you all know where this is going. Because the God of Israel has already faced up against the gods of the Philistines once more. So, we're about to get a replay here. This is going to be the same episode again. We read that as the people of Israel hear this, as they consider this, they're not thinking, they're not processing this in a way where they understand the implications of this. Why? Because they're fearful. We read in verse 11 that when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The result of hearing this is that Saul, who's the king, who's the tallest the natural candidate to go fight the tallest Philistine. You know, he's had some great victories. Like, this is the guy. He's the natural choice. Let's send him out. He is described, again, as being dismayed and greatly afraid. He didn't have the courage to accept this, uh, this challenge. And again, we find that Saul is characterized by fear, greatly afraid. Now, what we're intended to see is this, because we've just come off of, of chapter 16. We've just come off of the anointing of David. What we are intended to see as we come to the text is this. The tallest of Israel, afraid. The tallest in Gath, Philistines, this mighty specimen, 
We're meant to look upon these two individuals and to remember the very words of the Lord. The Lord does not look on the outward appearance. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He's not concerned that this guy's tall or that this guy's tall. That's not a, that's not a consideration. Who did the Lord pick when he selected his man that he wanted to use? The smallest one. The one that wasn't even invited to this sacrificial meal. For the Lord, he's not even considering that we need to get somebody who could be equipped to fight this battle. That's not something that he's worried about. And so we are supposed to come to this and say, what mistakes that these two would be trusting in their physical presence that it will fail them or either allow them to succeed. Now, the camera pans, and we look at David in verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite in Bethlehem in Judea named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So Jesse's a little bit older now. He's too old to go to battle. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So Jesse doesn't go to the battle. He's too old. Instead, he sends his three sons. And so uh, they go out to battle to fight. And David is acting here as uh, just kind of this messenger. He's a courier going between. And as he's, he's there, he is uh, bringing supplies, making sure that his brothers have what they need. He's refreshing the commanders, trying to get word for an anxious father, perhaps, here. Uh, but all the while, he's returning to tend to his sheep. He's staying focused on his role and responsibility. He's making sure that, that he is a good steward of all that God has given him. Now, it seems like that might be something that you might want to overlook and be like, well, you know, yeah, you just got to like, sheep's got to eat, like, right? But there's more to it than that because David's exact argument in battle is anchored in his role as a shepherd. His entire argument is anchored in his experience as a shepherd. And so what's important that we know that David didn't say, oh, there's a war, like, let me go, like, cue my Rocky scene, and I'm going to go out, and you're going to see me climbing the mountain and, like, you know, in the barn, like, lifting weights. And he's like, no, like, I'm, I'm going about my business. I'm being faithful with what God has put in front of me. He's, he doesn't think for a moment, you know, I was anointed king, so, like, maybe I should go to the battle and figure out, like, how kings work in battle. He's not there. Because the Lord hasn't opened that door for him. He's already anointed the king, but yet he has not been given that rule and reign yet. And so he's faithful. He's sticking with it. He's with the course here. Now, for 40 days, the Philistines came forward. They take the stand morning and evening. It's just an interesting note here that this is the exact time frame. Right? We get, th we get three uh, periods of time here. 40 days, which biblically is typically a period of judgment. 40 days is a, a time of trial, a time of judgment. And here, perhaps that the Lord was saying, you know, Israel, you've had 40 days. You've, got, you've had 40 days to do your thing, right? 
to be weighed. And, and then we find, interestingly enough, that in these 40 days, the, the Philistine comes forward and he takes his stand when? In the morning and when the, in the evening. When are the sacrifices offered? In the morning and in the evening. It's a curious time for someone to come forth and bring this intimidation tactic when the people are about to get refocused on the Lord and to go through the sacrifices to say, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here comes, here comes the enemy saying, oh, don't worry about that worship. Like, it's, time, it's time to like battle. It's time to, to receive your, your daily discouragement. That's how the enemy works. Right when you think you're, you're about to settle in, he comes. Comes to discourage. And so you never really set your eyes back on the Lord. Forty days is a lengthy time and no one has accepted. And David returns to the camp with supplies for his brothers. Verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And, the Israel, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So we find that now David's back in the camp. He's bringing supplies. He gets there. The war cry go goes out, and he's trying to find his brothers. He can't find them, so he's like, oh, they're in the ranks. I got to go greet them. So he goes out. They're all lined up for war, and he's going out there to, to uh, just be like, hey, I'm here. I got your stuff. He doesn't come as a warrior. He comes as a messenger. He comes as a courier. He's bringing things to his family. More than that, he wasn't shirking his responsibilities. We note that he left his sheep with a keeper. And he took provisions as Jesse commanded him. So he wasn't shirking his responsibilities and he was being obedient to his father. Again, the, the demonstration of godly character. But as he's there, Goliath comes out. Goliath is reintroduced. Things appear to be the same. Same old, same old. The people line up both sides. As they're gathered there, Goliath makes his way out to make his, his challenge. Things, everything seems to be the same. One difference. One difference this time. The last words of verse 23, and David heard him. This is the difference between the day before and the day of this battle. That David hears him this time. A man with ears to hear, a man who is filled with the Spirit, a man who is ready to obey the Lord, he hears. As God's people, we should always be ready to respond to the opportunities that the Lord puts in front of us. It could be the same old for everybody else. You can be parroting the same things. You could be going through the motions day after day. Everybody else can be doing their regular thing. But as God's people, we walk around with this, this radar on, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to draw us into opportunities, to help us walk in victory in those works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk into. We want those things because in following the Lord, we have success. We have the opportunity to bring him glory through our obedience. 
as we see his work, as we see him display his goodness in our lives, as he empowers us to do things for him. And so we don't want to come to the same battle just like all of Israel and, you know, have this challenge go and fall on deaf ears. We want to come and say, well, how come we're not doing anything about this? Like, what's going on here? If you want one practical example of this, one practical, I'm going to give you one takeaway so no one's off the hook. When someone says, when you say to someone, how's it going? And they say, good. Don't just be like, cool. Say, why is it going good? Because that's a thing we would just say in passing to one another. There's an opportunity for us to provoke each other into love and good works, to provoke each other towards righteousness. So if somebody is going and, like, if you ask them how they're doing and they do say they're, they're doing good, then you can rejoice together over what's going good. You can find an opportunity to glorify God in that simplicity. Have those ears perked up. Where are the opportunities? Don't let the status quo just keep you where you are. The Lord wants to give you more. He wants to work at a deeper level. He wants to encourage you and equip you. There's opportunities to bring him glory. Very simple one. All the things that are just the regular, regular things in life. Stop. Look around. See how the Lord might work. Verse 29, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. They were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So all the men, they all gather up to battle. They see this. And then they're running away and they're just kind of recounting like, there's no way we're going to participate in this, right? They run away afraid. They don't believe that the reward that they're going to get, it's worth this battle. They're, they're, they're like, there's no way we're going to do this. Like, we can't win. They look at the opportunity. They look at the offering. Great riches. You have the opportunity to marry Saul's daughter. You have the opportunity to have your extended family live uh, tax-free. And they're like, no, this is not worth it. Like, we're not going there. And David said to the men, verse 26, who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, here's the interesting thing about this section. The people are recounting what you get. The people are recounting this in verse 25. They saw the man, they fled from him, they were afraid. And they say, have you seen this man who has come up? Have you seen Goliath? They look at it with these eyes that are oriented on themselves. This guy is huge. Look at his presence. Have you seen him? But when David comes to it, When David shows up and when he speaks, he asks the same question. And we're meant to see this contrast here. David says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
It's a different approach. It's the same idea, but a different approach. They both see that, like, there's this, this guy. But the people of Israel see him as a physical presence that is threatening, that is scary, that, that makes them afraid. But when David shows up and when he speaks, his perspective is theological. He says, not, have you seen this man? He says, have you seen, or, or what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's focus is not on the reward. He's not worried about that. He, he gets what you, what you get if you, if you win. That's not, that's not his, his point. His focus is on righteousness. Because his problem with Goliath is, is not that Goliath is big and strong and like we've got to defeat this guy or else he's going to defeat us. David's big problem is that this Philistine is bringing reproach upon Israel. This Philistine is attacking the name of the Lord. He's jealous for God's glory. Why is this guy like being able to roam free and let him, let him come and, and bring these threats against God? <coughs> right? This is, this is how he focuses it. David says, what should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, he's not there just making a, a, a random comment. He's saying that this guy's outside of the covenant. He, he's somebody who's not in relationship with God. That he should defy the armies of the living God. David's like, I know who we are. We're the armies of the living God. Like, what are we doing? Why are we letting this guy go? Now, as you hear these words, let this sink in. This is the first time we hear David speak. <laughs> he hasn't said a word yet. As you come to the passage, he hasn't said anything. He just, he's, it's described about what he's doing. But the first time we hear him, the first time we actually hear him speak, it's regarding his passion for the Lord. It's not like, hey, like I, I don't understand why like I'm the king, or like it's not complaining about like how come I'm not the king yet, or like why like if I'm gonna be the king, why am I still like with the sheep? Like what's going on here? Like none of that. The first words that we hear from David in the scriptures are these words. David is focused on faith and not fear. As we said, David will be characterized again and again and again by faith. Whereas Saul is characterized by fear, David is characterized by faith. The men of Israel, they think that the Philistines are unable to be defeated. They're like totally sold that we're never going to win. The Philistines have this giant warrior, but to David, this giant warrior, he's just an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't say like, oh, this is like, have you seen this guy? He's just like, like we gotta, there's a guy in our way, we should probably take care of him. He's not really worried about it. Now, how does David respond? How does he respond in this manner, in this situation? What separates him from the rest of the people? 
What drives him? How is he able to do this? Well, the answer is, is there in, in the passage. David knows that he serves the living God. This is why he lays it out. He knows whom he serves. I serve the living God. Or to put it another way, he knows that his identity is rooted in the living God. He understands who he is. And so when you are in relationship with the living God, that changes everything. When God rules and reigns over all things, when he's sovereign over all, it changes the way that you, that you go through life. Because when we encounter circumstances, when we encounter uh, decisions, worries, anxieties, fears, we have to start to ask the right question. And too often we start with our list of pros and cons because the cons are really the fears. And, and as you look at it on, at your pros, you're like, are there, are there enough benefits to overcome my fears? That, that's really how, like, we're, how we weigh these things. Here's the benefits. Here's the things I'm afraid of. Is there enough benefit to overcome the things I'm afraid of? Or am I willing to risk the things I'm afraid of for this? It's the fears that are controlling. It's the fears that are the things that are, are really arresting you from taking action or for moving forward. Now, the solution is not to just be like, okay, well, we want to ignore the fears. Don't worry about the fears. That's, that's not what the, the prescription from the text is. The, the, because what happens is when you come to trust in Christ for salvation, when you find your identity in him, you go into more difficult territory, not easier territory. It doesn't get like less fears. It gets more fears, and you learn how to, to find your identity in Christ in the midst of those fears, in the midst of those worries and anxieties, in the midst of those things that begin to overwhelm you. You move deeper into the heat of the battle. You move in with Jesus together into the heart of the battle. Our identity is in Christ and we serve the living God. And this is what David understands. When you have an identity that's rooted in Christ, then you can move into these difficult situations and you can stand in the midst of trial, hardship, suffering. Because Jesus is with you. Verse 28, now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a, uh, was it not but a word? So Eliab, his older brother, as all older brothers are, are kind of like wanting to squash, uh, squash little David a little bit. He's the youngest. He's the runt. And, and perhaps here that maybe he was bitter about being passed over for uh, the kingship. Maybe it's like, look, like here's little King David, like coming out here trying to like flex his muscles. And, and he's, he brings this um, discouragement to David, right? Maybe, it, maybe Eliab is, is also a little bit irritated that like this is David's first time hearing Goliath. And all of a sudden David's like, well, I'll go fight him. Like, oh, like, you know, he's all excited. And, and, and you know, what does that really say about Eliab and his brothers? Like, like why have you not gone and done this? Maybe he's stressed out about that. Nevertheless, Eliab, he discourages David. He's like, why are, you, why are you here? Why did you come here? 
He, more than that, he says, I know, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. He's like, you just want to see a battle. I know why you're here. You've come out to see this. You want to see the action? But David, he's just like, what? Like, I just, I was just talking. Why are you all upset at me? And in the confidence that he has in, in the Lord, he just turns around. Verse 30, he turned away from, from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you were not able to go, uh, go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So David, he continues to speak. He doesn't get discouraged, even though... Eliab tries to discourage him. The word gets back to Saul. And then as David is brought there to Saul, David says, like, I'll go fight him. I got this. I'm going to do it. His passion for God is what drives him. His passion for God is what drives him. It's not that he wants this massive wealth. It's not that he wants this, this honor. But he wants to give glory to God and to, re, and to remove uh, this, this disgrace from Israel. Now Saul, again, he operates from fear. He only sees a path that leads to failure. Right? This is why he goes in verse 33 and he says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. It's like he's been training since the time that, you know, before you, like, from when you were younger than you. And you're not trained at all. And you're going to go fight this guy. It doesn't make any sense. Here he is, discouraging David. Like, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't do this. But again... Saul looks on the outward appearance. He's assessing David's battle readiness based on his military experience. He's like, look, this is not going to go good. But David comes back in verse 34 with his rebuttal. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David's rebuttal is rooted in his occupation as a shepherd. Saul says, well, you don't really have any experience. You're like, you're untrained. This is not really going to go good. And David says, well, you know, I, I, I used to be a shepherd here. Like, I, I, I'm experienced in that. And if I had to fight a lion or a bear and they came and took one of the, the sheep away, I would go chase him down. I would track him down. And then I would catch them 
and that I would kill them and get, get my lamb back. Like David's hardcore. And he says, I will do the same thing. I will do the same thing. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. <clears throat> David says, I've got experience. Now, here we get a little bit more insight because we would think like, okay, well, yeah, David, Saul, Saul's like, yeah, we're kind of coming along with Saul. Like, okay, well, like, yeah, if you're able to defeat some bears and lions, like, that's pretty good. Like, maybe, maybe you have a chance. Like, lions and bears are pretty hard to defeat. Also, side note, there are lions and bears. Like, there's a Syrian brown bear and also an Asiatic uh, lion. You could look it up later, but the, mostly they're extinct in that area now. Uh, but yes, they're... I know you typically think of Israel and you don't think of lions and bears, but yeah, they're there. Uh, not so much anymore, mostly extinct now uh, in that area, but just FYI, I asked this question very early on, did the research. Okay, here's what you need to know. David is not counting on his experience here with having victory over lions or bears. That's not what he's getting at. Because he goes on in verse 37, and he says this. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What David is saying is this. It wasn't my skill that saved me from the lion or the bear. It wasn't my boldness that saved me from the lion or the bear. I was precisely able to have victory over the lion and the bear because of the Lord. He attributes all of his ability to have victory to the Lord. He's not trying to convince Saul on the basis of like, well, you know, like I could be a good military warrior and I could crush it if I went out there and like I have had some victories. He says, the way that I survived was that the Lord sustained me. The Lord helped me. It's the Lord's past faithfulness in David's life that leads him to have boldness in the Lord's future faithfulness. He's standing here, he's standing here in a middle place, looking back at God's past faithfulness and saying, here's your record of your goodness, of your faithfulness to me, and I can trust you in the future because of what you have done for me. I can count that on you. You've never failed, and here I can look forward to see that you will do what you said you will do. David says, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain, or he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. So David put them off. So here's what happens. Saul's like, okay, fine, whatever, go. Do your thing, like, I guess if you want to fight him, fine. He says, here's, here's what you need. Like, here's how I have victory, David. Here's all my stuff. Copy, paste, armor from me onto you. Pow, go. Now, we've seen that if, you, if you're going to copy, paste from anybody, you don't want to copy, paste from Saul because Saul has not done real great with his relationship with the Lord. Like, that's not what you want to be taking your cues from, right? 
And what we need to understand here is, that, is this. David says, I cannot go with these. Why can he not go? Because they were ineffective? Is armor useful? Yeah. But what David says is, I have not tested these. This is not my experience with the Lord. When I go out, I go out ready, like, just like this. I don't go out depending upon these things. I need to go out in full trust and full reliance. It's like, this isn't, this isn't my way. I don't go out with armor. Now, of course, there were probably some practicalities there about like movement and things like that. And David's like, no, this is not a really great idea. But what he's getting at in his heart of hearts is that I don't have this experience. Like, this is not how I have learned to rely on the Lord. And what we're, what we're meant to see is here is that, that we should not be copying and pasting from others. Right? This, this is why Jesus always tries to discourage formulas as you look at his ministry. Because he's not trying to get you to, to be like, okay, well, like, you know, we talked about this at community group the other day. Like, if you want to open the eyes of a blind man, like, just tell him, like, open your eyes. And then, like, there'll be a bunch of, like, fools walking around saying that to blind people and because like that's the formula but what Jesus does sometimes is he like says open your eyes and then sometimes he like spits on the ground and like puts mud and jams it into someone's eyes and it's like okay well like that's a horrible idea right sometimes he just spits directly in someone's eyes like what's going on here there's no formula because it's meant it's meant for us to see that you cannot you cannot get rid of God you have to rely on him every step of the way every time it's not a copy-paste because it's fresh and new every time. And so as you're going through life, you can't look around at somebody else and be like, well, I'm going to borrow that. That seems like it's great. I'm going to do that. We're meant to press into Christ together, to grow and learn together. To point each other to Jesus, not to give each other formulas by which to be successful. David says, let's go. I can't put these on, so he takes them off. Stick with me, we're going to go quick now. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the, the Philistine. So he's got, he goes down to the brook, he grabs five stones, two to three inches about is kind of what, what's the range there in that, um, in that little brook. He's got his, his sling uh, this is not the, uh, the classic tree branch slingshot, as perhaps you were thinking this is, where he's got the, the rubber bands and the leather pouch, and he's Dennis the Menacing it back, pulling it back tight, and let it fly. Like, that's not, what's, that's not what's happening here. This is the old school. You got the long leather strap with, like, a little, a little pouch, and you put your rock in it, and you and let it go one side of it, and apparently if you have skills, then... It flies out. I've tried this before once. It did not go good. Um, it's very hard. But here, two to three inch stones, it seems like what he has. He grabs them. He goes out to meet Goliath. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. So, he, right, like this is just like so horrible. Like what a chicken move to do. Like you're like a giant. Then you like go and you put the shield bearer guy out in front. Like, all right, let's do this. It's like, really come on right then then we find 
Verse 42, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So he comes out to battle. Now we've got these two guys here in the valley. There's, you know, at a distance, we've got Goliath on one side and David making his way over. And he finally gets a glimpse of David. And he's like, are you kidding me right now? Are you for real? Like, you guys sent this kid out here to fight me? Like, how disrespectful. Like, I thought I was going to get your champion. And out comes David. And he just sees, like, okay, like, he's a youth He's handsome. He's, like, not battle-trained. Goliath's expecting some, like, gnarly, you know, war-scarred, like, uh, you know, soldier to come out and attack him. And so he's offended not only by David's appearance, but he's also offended by David's approach to battle. David doesn't come out with anything except for his shepherd's staff and his sling. He's like, what in the world is going on here? Like, what? Like, you were supposed, like, you don't even, you're not respecting me on the, on the field of battle. Like, you're just kind of rolling out here, and you show up with a, with a stick? And that's why he starts to come up with these quips, like, oh, am I this dog that you come to me with sticks? He's like, are you, am I, am I going to throw that, and I'm supposed to go get it? Like, what, what, like, you're just like this little kid who wants to play? Is that what's happening here? But what, what we're intended to see here is that Goliath is the pinnacle. He is the pinnacle of all the other voices that David has been hearing. Because as you, as you consider this, uh, his speech to David, as you consider his um, exchange with David, he speaks out against what? David's attitude? He just comes plainly. And he speaks out against his appearance. Like, oh, you're, you're not experienced. You're not somebody who should be out here. Who does he sound like? Sounds like Saul. Sounds like Eliab. Right? He joins this chorus of other people telling him, like, like why are you here? Like, this is super annoying. Like, why are you out here right now? He, he's, he's somebody who, who, who comes up and says, like, you don't have the experience. Like, why? like, this is not a good spot for you to be. He tells him, like, you're, you're too small. You're too small to be here. You have no armor. He sounds exactly like Saul. Why are you here? Saul tries to give him the armor. Because they both, Goliath and Saul, they both trust in military experience. They both trust in iron and bronze. They both are men who are in this same mindset. Goliath makes his, his speech, as was typically the custom in these battles, both uh, Goliath and David will have an opportunity. Goliath names out his gods, which is, you know, this is why he kind of references this idea that uh, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is kind of a curse that he brings down from uh, the Philistine gods. <coughs> but now David. They begin David's battlefield declaration and he starts in verse 44 with these words. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a, with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
the Lord this day, or this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Like, what an insane speech. So good, right? Because David comes out and he attacks theologically. He doesn't try to bring intimidation. He says, here's the deal, Goliath. Uh, You've come out here with a sword and spear, trusting in this, your javelin. But I have come not with the equipping of the traditional means of war. But I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And what David is saying here is like, uh, I'm just showing up, but in reality, you're fighting the Lord here. Like you've defied him. You haven't defied me. Because God is the most offended party here. You You have defied the Lord. And so he says the result of this is that you're gonna lose. The Lord will strike you down. And the purpose of this is entirely where David is going. Because what does David want out of this? He is not looking for these rewards. He's not looking for the people of Israel to necessarily just be, oh, you're all freed from the oppression of the Philistines. What David is looking for and what he's he's getting at here is that this victory will serve as a proclamation of the Lord's salvation for his people, that he is going to rescue and save. Right? He says, This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, right? For the purpose that all may know that there is a God in Israel. So all the other nations, they would know that we have the supreme God. We we serve the true and living God. More than that, he also knows, and he's also in the back of his mind, thinking about all of his doubters who have been afraid for 40 days. And he says in verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. He's like, so that way they can understand that like this battle is going to be irrational and there's no way that we should win, but it's all the Lord. That's how he finishes. The battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him. What David is getting at here is, is essentially what is stressed in the book of Zechariah. When as the group of people are looking to serve the Lord, what is said? The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. We get get the specific words from God about how his heart works. He saves not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's not by might or by power, but by the spirit of God working in the people of God. He's not looking for swords and spears to bring victory Weapons don't determine the final outcome of the battle. It's the Lord who fights for his people. Now we get to the battle. Verse 48. When the Philistines arose and came came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took uh, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he and, and, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran over, uh, ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So all of this to get the entire battle in one sentence. <laughs> all of this to get the entire battle in one sentence. David put his hand in his bag, took out the stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. That's it. All of this for that one sentence. The problem is, is that this isn't about the one sentence. This isn't about the battle there, about how this gets accomplished. This is a story about identity. This is a story about two individuals trusting in gods. And David says that we serve the true and living God. The, the story of David and Goliath is hardly about the battle. It's only the catalyst that causes God's people to be interested in the story so they can see exactly what David was trying to prove sentences earlier, that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. David does go to meet this Goliath in battle. He does take out his sling. He does wind it up and flings out this stone, you know, that probably was going, you know, upwards, you know, of 120 miles per hour. And, of course, it's a stunning victory, a huge upset. But what we're meant to see here is that this is the defeat of the Philistines and the gods of the Philistines. What happened earlier when the Lord squared off against the god of the Philistines, Dagon? He just kept getting knocked over, knocked over, knocked over, fell on his face, right? Second time, face, head lopped off. What happens here? Face down, head lopped off. This is a total and complete judgment against the Philistines. This is to say, if you thought about going back to that god that you were serving before, you have been exposed again. Your false gods have been exposed. Verse 52, And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as the gate, as, as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Pow. There it is. The people are emboldened by David's victory. The Philistines obviously don't uh, surrender like was discussed in these terms of battle. I don't think they thought that they were going to lose. They do lose. And then they're like, we're out of here. Like, that was a gnarly victory. They go running. The people go chase down the rest of the Philistines. They have victory. And we find that David takes the head of the Philistines, and brings it to Jerusalem. He put his armor in the tent. Now, what's going on here? Well, one, David wasn't some, like, weirdo who just, like, yo, let's carry this around uh, with me here. This was, he brings it to Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem is occupied by, partially by the Israelites, but also a group of people called the Jebusites, whom David goes to uh, attack a little bit later. So this is probably a, uh, some sort of a, uh, you're on notice we're, we're coming for you. This, if you uh, weren't aware, Goliath here, who was the champion, uh, he's done. 
So perhaps Jebusites, you just want to like get out and like be done here so we don't have to let this get crazy later. Uh, so perhaps that was part of it. But, but again, what does the touring of this, of this head do? It reminds all of Israel and all the people that there is a God in Israel. It reminds the assembly that the Lord has saved. How is he saved? Through the champion. Through the champion. The weakness of this champion. See, the thing about this, and the thing that's really interesting about this whole text is, as we think about champion, we think about it being, uh, you know, like the ultimate victor, which in a sense, it, it comes to mean that. Because that, that's the result of somebody who, who is a champion, that they are the victor, the winner, that they, that they are not defeated. But what the word actually means is pretty incredible because it speaks to this battle of champions. What the word actually means, if you look at it, it means a man between. Right? So it's designed to be exactly like what we find in this battle. That there's Israel on one side and that we find the Philistines on one side and that there's the valley and that we have these two men who go out and fight. There's a man between. There's this man who's in the middle and this other man who's in the middle and they battle it out and whoever survives is the champion. Like that's, like you're the only man in the middle that's left. It starts with there being men in the middle but it only ends with one man in the middle. The man in the middle. But as we come to this, as we look at it, it's interesting that this is where we get that language. The idea of a champion. Because what it really reflects on here is this battle of Goliath coming out as this champion. He has previously been the one who has fought battles for the Philistines. And we find that David comes out as a representative for Israel, as a champion, although he's never fought in this capacity. Goliath has had some victories. He's had victories at the expense of others. You can see that he's one who attacks, who seeks to tear down his opponent, who seeks to discourage, who seeks to uh, come at, at his opponent from any angle in order to, to cut down anyone who would threaten his identity as the champion. As we come to the story, what we realize more and more is that Ultimately, we are Goliath. We are Goliath in the sense that, that we are the, the person who, who comes to the pinnacle, comes to the point where we see that, yeah, we are like King Saul, who is ultimately found in Goliath. We all, and, and is really personified there through Goliath's threats and the things that he says and his mindset. Here's the practical ways that, like, oh, we're going to have victory. Here's what I want to do. He's controlling his identity. We find that Goliath is very much like David's brother, Eliab, like, what are you here for? What's your problem? And what happens here is that we take on these things as we go out into battle against others in this world, as we go out into battle against in this life and people come against us and we start cutting people down and saying like, well, who are you to say that? Or like, why are you trying to change who I am? And we get defensive. 
we get defensive because people are attacking our identities. Anyone who opposes our reputation, they've got to go. And when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, it's us or them. And I'll tell you, we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose. And as much as we want to be perceived as kind people, we'll do anything to protect that reputation. We'll do anything to protect our own identities. And in doing so, we find that we are people who ultimately defy the living God. We are ultimately those people who defy the living God and threaten anybody who wants to come against us. We defy the living God because we are made in his image and all people are made to be in relationship with him. And when we are out on our own, we're saying, no, it's just me. I'm the one out here in the middle. I'm the champion. Anyone who has come against me, I, I have defeated them. But God, in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace, he sends out his own champion. He sends out his own champion, the true man in the middle, the greater than David. He comes in weakness. Jesus comes to meet us in the middle of the valley. And to conquer our opposition to him. He comes out and he defeats us and our little rebel hearts, not through the sword, but through weakness. He becomes weak so that we might become strong. He becomes poor so that we might have his riches. He becomes sin so that through his sacrifice, we might have the righteousness of God. He comes out to meet us in the middle. This is what he comes to do. But as he comes out, as those who meet him in the middle, because I'll tell you, all of us are standing at some point in the valley here. He comes up. And he says, only one of us is going to win here. And it's not going to be you. <laughs> it's not going to be you. Because Jesus never loses. He never loses. He comes out to give his life so that we might reclaim life in him. He meets us in that difficult place where we oppose him. And he invites us into relationship with him. We've got to lay down our weapons. We've got to take off our armor. We've got to set these things down and acknowledge that you are the true champion. That you are the only one. There can only be one man in the middle. And so you can either fight against the true man in the middle. You can fight and lose. Or you can bow your knee in honor that he is the true man in the middle. That he is the only one deserving. that you can find your identity in him.
This is what he invites us into. He's the only true champion. He can never be the only true champion. And he invites us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And as we do so, he brings us in our death to self back to life, raising us up with him. Raising us up with him in new life as new people, as newborns. Newborns are weak. They're weak. They don't have skills. They don't have abilities. They got nothing. But as you can see, you you don't need a lot of things to serve the Lord because the Lord doesn't save with swords and spears. He's not relying on what you bring to the table. He's relying on you, asking you to come empty-handed, to come with nothing. And so as you meet the man in the middle, lay your weapons down and follow. It'll be good for you. It'll be life for all. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness, for your kindness. We're thankful that you have conquered Satan, sin, and death. We're thankful that you have given us new life through your work at the cross. And so we celebrate you um, this morning. We celebrate your work that you have accomplished. And so, Lord, help us to trust in your work. We look at your past faithfulness displayed as you laid your life down for us. As the true man in the middle, you stood between God and man as our great victor, as our mediator, making a way for us to know and enjoy you, or we want to come into relationship with you. We want to rejoice over that work. We want to celebrate you. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church. We love you. Amen.